I'm going to be looking at the message uh, to the church at Philadelphia as we share together. Uh, <clears throat> I found a story that was written by Jim M. Allen uh, about the, a ship called Endurance. It's a story of survival, a story of success. And more than 80 years ago in 1914, Ernest Shackleton and a crew of 28 men aboard this ship, Endurance, sailed and entered the pack ice off the continent of Antarctica. Their goal was to be the first people to trek across on foot the continent of Antarctica. And so they became, as they uh, were in this pack ice, it became evident that they were in, in tremendous danger. And the ship became uh, trapped in this pack ice, and they were afraid of, of being uh, crushed and, and the ship sinking. And so ultimately they decided that they would get out on the ice and live. And so they were living on the ice with very few supplies and uh, uh, three small boats that they had taken off of the ship. And the ice did, in fact, damage the ship endurance and it sank. And so they were able to survive for some time by killing uh, penguins and... Uh, seals, and ultimately ate, they ate the, their own sled dogs. And so they were living in very difficult situations. And then eventually they spotted an island off in the distance. And so when they were able to find an opening through the ice, they launched their boats, and in seven days' journey they were able to get to <clears throat> this island uh, known as Elephant Island. But it was uninhabited, a very inhospitable island. And Shackleton realized that this was not an island that was on the beaten path of any trade ship, you know, uh, trade route, and that their chance of being rescued here were slim to none at very best. And so they made a decision, and Shackleton, along with five men, launched from that island, and they planned to go to the island of South Georgia, which was 800 miles away. And so these, these men were navigating with a sextant, and they were, in fact, able to reach the island of South Georgia. And the problem was that they, they landed on the uninhabited side. And so in order to get to help, they ultimately had to walk for 36 hours over 22 miles in some very difficult, glacier-clad, 1,000-feet-high mountains. But ultimately, they reached the whaling port of Stromness in May of 1916. His attempts to rescue his crewmen left behind on Elephant Island would not be successful until August of 1916, a full 22 months after they'd initially set out. Remarkably, all 28 men survived. Now, this is a, a story that, you know, a century later has been is very uh, encouraging and challenging and when we think about all that they went through simply to survive, to endure the difficult circumstances and situations in order to, to save their life. The church at Philadelphia was written a letter by Christ here in Revelation, and he was commending them for their faithfulness, for their enduring. Many of us would go through a lot to save our physical life. What we need to be challenged is that we will continue to be faithful and endure in our spiritual life, to bring honor and glory to God in this time.
And so I want us to read the text. Any of you that are physically able, please stand with me in the reading of the Word of God. We're going to read from Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. Because you have little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Because, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. <clears throat> and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and I pray that today you will teach us from it. We thank you for its encouragement. We thank you for its challenge. We thank you for its truth. And Lord, we just trust now that you speak into our hearts and lives that we might be different than we were before we came. And I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As we look at this passage of Scripture, the, church at, uh, the letter to the church at Philadelphia, there are only two churches of the seven that Christ wrote these letters to, or that he addressed, where there were no statements, and this I have against you. And so, here's one, the church at Philadelphia where he simply wants to commend them for their faithfulness and challenging them and challenge them to endure. I've kind of given you a summary statement there, kind of the point of the of the passage. Uh, as you begin, Christ commends the church in Philadelphia for its persevering witness in which he will empower its members further and encourage them to continue to persevere so as to inherit end time fellowship and identification with him. We all encounter difficulties in life. You know, we, we, are, we attempt to do things and we become discouraged. Roadblocks are thrown up in our way. Obstacles come. And that's certainly going to happen in our spiritual lives. And we need to learn how we can endure, how we can remain faithful. And so as we look at this passage, I see four truths that are there that will help us as it did the believers there in Philadelphia to remain faithful. And so the first one is, is that in our battle to remain faithful, we need to remember that we serve an awesome God. We serve an awesome God. Christ, in, in, as he opened up this letter that he had recorded and sent to the church at Philadelphia, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, 
who has the key of David, who opens and no one closes. He addresses this letter with this title that he's given himself, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. As we look at those, he is holy and true, speaks to the character of Jesus. Christ shares the holy, sinless, pure nature of his Father. That is, he is absolutely pure and separate from sin. We serve an eternally holy, righteous God, totally separated from sin. His very nature is that there is no sin in him. And he cannot live in the presence of sin. But we, under, we need to understand that we serve a holy, a righteous God. Jesus Christ participates in that holy, sinless, pure nature of his Father. The Holy One of God is also a messianic title. Mark one twenty four is it records this, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. You see, Jesus had gone into the synagogue and he was teaching. And as he was teaching, a man that was possessed by a demon, a demon stood up and said, What in the world do you and I have to do with each other? I know who you are. The Holy One sent from God. You know, you know Jesus Christ is the one true Messiah. Even the, the demons know who he is. The Holy One of God. The true Messiah. He who is holy. He who is true. He is the true Messiah. Another time we find recorded in John six sixty nine, Jesus was going about and he was teaching. And some of his teachings were very difficult. And some of the disciples had left. And Jesus turned to the other disciples and said, what about you? And in verse 69, they responded like this. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, as they walked about with him and, and heard his teachings and saw his miracles, they came to a realization, yes, this is indeed the true Messiah. We serve a holy God. We serve a true God. We serve the only God that has the power to save. He is the Messiah. The idea of true carries connotations of Jesus being the true Messiah. So he is he's, he's holy. He's true. Even though the Jews of that time said he is not the Messiah. The Messiah is yet to come. The believers there in Philadelphia stood firm. And they recognized him. And they proclaimed him though he is rejected by jews as a false messianic pretender the folks and the believers in philadelphia recognized him as the true messiah so he is holy and true he is he is of the same nature and essence as god the father eternally holy pure apart from sin he is the true Messiah. And then thirdly, secondly there we see that he has the authority to open and close doors. He is a God of ultimate authority. 
He is the only one that can open the door to heaven. He is the ultimate judge who will enter and who will not. You see, the reference to the keys to the house of David are found in Isaiah twenty two twenty two, A prophecy that says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulders. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Here again, the, the, the lineage of David is being fulfilled. A king always on the throne. The ultimate authority is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the only one that has the authority. So Jesus, the holy and true witness, will empower those faithful to him to be his witnesses. He is holy and true. He has the authority to open and close the doors. And because he's holy and true and he has ultimate authority, he can empower you and me to do whatever he calls upon us to do. That's the God we serve. Christ and his people stand as a true Jewish witness in contrast to those who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Verse 9. By saying that Jesus is a false Messiah and his followers false Israelites. Just because they say it, it doesn't make it true. Jesus and true followers of Jesus Christ are the true Jewish witness. A witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first principle, the first truth that we need to remember is that we need to remember the God that we serve as we seek to endure, as we seek to remain faithful as the, the, the difficulties and trials come our way. We serve a, a holy God. There's no other God like Him. We serve the true God. He is the only true God. The only one with the authority and the power to save. And then secondly, we, need, we see here in this text, he gave the church at Philadelphia a great opportunity for ministry. Look at verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. He has put before them an open door. Now, what is this open door? Well, there's some debate as the scholars uh, look at this. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses his open-door phraseology to indicate great opportunity for ministry and evangelistic, evangelistic endeavors. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 16, 9, he says, A great door for effective work has been opened to me. And in Colossians 4, 3, he's asking for prayer, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. His heart's desire is to speak the gospel, to preach the gospel wherever he goes, and he prays for open doors, a great opportunity for that to happen. On the other hand, right here in, in chapter 4, verse 1, following this uh, passage, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So when he's writing to the, the, the scene, he's sh sharing about this scene in heaven. So there's an open door into heaven. So is he talking about an open door for you and me into heaven? Or is he talking about open door of ministry and opportunity 
Certainly there's validity to both of those. And this open door into heaven certainly fits the context here. But you know, I think both of them apply. I think certainly Jesus Christ has provided for us an open door to enter into heaven, enter into eternity as followers of His. If, if there's been a point in time in your life where you truly repented of your sin, chose to leave that sin and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, surrendering to His Lordship in your life, He saved you. And there's that open door there. And it's an open door that no one can shut. You have an eternal uh, security in being able to walk through that open door. But the very fact that he has authority over those who enter and those who don't. He's chosen you and me to be his witnesses. The last commission that he gave us as he prepared to go into heaven was to go and make disciples. So I, I think there's ministry opportunity that he opens up for us as well because his heart's desire is that no one should perish but that all should come to repentance so i think both of them are principles that that we can apply here there is an open door for us if god leads us to do something he's going to open the way to go your first bullet there around the world doors are always opening or closing so it is important that the church be alert and ready to take advantage of the opportunities God presents. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church where we take seriously having the world on our heart. That world begins right around us here. And I know some of you are faithful to share the gospel, to share a witness, invite folks here to hear the gospel. Others are faithful to be a, a part of the mission projects that we send. It's an exciting day when we stand here and we commission a, a team that's going to Japan this next week. We're praying for a team that's on the ground right now in Kenya. And we've just seen a report from a team that went into East Tennessee and has recently returned. That's exciting. God has opened for us a great door of opportunity. And I'm so grateful that, that we're walking through it during this time. But we must never think that we're doing enough. We must never lose our alertness. You see, we need to be alert and ready to take advantage of the opportunities that God presents. Because those opportunities are not guaranteed to be there forever. Some of these unreached people groups that are in Islamic countries, that are in Buddhist or Hindu countries, we never know when the opposition becomes so strong that we're no longer to be there. We need to be sure that we're taking advantage of those opportunities when the time comes. That open door for you might be the fact that you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In Revelation, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. You see, right now the door is closed. But Jesus is knocking. He's provided a way that the door to heaven is open.
but you only walk through it with his permission. And by his permission is granted by repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ, confessing him as Lord. Repentance and faith are, are integral parts of the process of coming to faith in him. Jesus Christ cannot be your Savior without being Lord. Some of us in this room have had emotional experiences of, or have feared going to hell, and, and we've prayed a sinner's prayer. And we think we're safe when we've never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. Without a surrender to Lordship, Romans 10, 9 and 10, he says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's not Savior without being Lord. If you're struggling with the Lordship, you better evaluate whether you've ever been saved. Certainly we struggle with, with total obedience. I'm not saying that. But if there's not a place and time in your life where there's been a total surrender to confessing that Jesus is Lord, you're desperately hopeless and helpless without Him and with no ability to save yourself. You may need to evaluate that. Around the world, doors are opening for us to be involved in ministry. Secondly, Jesus provides a great opportunity to the faithful. It's interesting how the more faithful they are, the, the more opportunity he provides. Look at, at what it says here. I have put before you, verse 8, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. You see this, I put this door before you that no one can shut because of your faithfulness. Even though you have little power, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. It's not about being a megachurch. You know, this is undoubtedly a, a small church. God will use any church, regardless if it's 30 folks gathered together or 30,000. It's not about the size of the church. It's about the faithfulness to God. Are we faithful to His Word? Will we not deny His name regardless of what comes our way? We're going to have great opportunity to deny the name of Jesus as things progress here in our country. We're going to receive persecution. We're going to be accused of, of many different things. And we may not verbally say, I do not believe in Jesus, but the actions that we show to people can very easily say that. So we need to be very careful. That we remain faithful to the Word of God. That means that we're going to have to stand on our convictions. We're going to have to stand on the truth of the Word of God. But yet we're going to have to be loving and gentle in the application of those truths. We're going to have to be Christ-like. So, he provides great opportunity. Though weak, they have kept his Word. Look at verse 10 as well. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world 
to test those who dwell on this earth. All right. Because they have endured, because they've persevered, Jesus is now promising that he's going to protect them from that hour of testing. What is this testing that he's talking about here? He's talking about a testing that's going to affect the whole world. It's going to come upon those who dwell on the earth as a reference to unbelievers. He's got to be talking about the great tribulation here. A time in which the whole world is going to go through a time of tribulation where the unbelievers are going to go through that difficult time. So then the question comes, how in the world is he going to protect them? There's a great interpretive challenge here. Many of you already aware of that. But it's whether Christ is promising to remove the believers physically from that testing, of course, this great tribulation, or whether or not he's going to protect them through it. And so we've got the pre-tribulation folks, and then we've got the post-tribulation folks. And if you're expecting me to solve that dilemma for you today, you're wrong. I have my own ideas of which one it is. But I do not think that that's a hill to die on. I think there's a greater truth here. And that's the fact that God is going to protect us whether He removes us before that time of tribulation through a rapture of His church or whether or not He protects us through that time. And then we see the rapture. So that's the key thing for us. He has promised to protect us during that hour, that hour of tribulation. You see, those who, right here where he says, I will protect you. And of course, the, the church here at Philadelphia certainly has passed from this life into eternity before this tribulation comes. But of course, it's got to be much broader than just the, the Philadelphia church. And so, uh, some would say that this verse, those that are a pre-tribulation rapture of, of that theology, they would say this verse is saying he will take the church out before the time of tribulation. Now, John 17, 15, Jesus prayed that his father would not take the disciples out of the world, but that he would protect them from the world. And so there's indication. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that we're going to be protected from trial and tribulation and persecution and difficulty and all of this kind of stuff. So what he's promising here is that he's going to protect us from the wrath of God. This great tribulation is going to be a display of the wrath of God. And so we have examples of that in the Old Testament. God called Moses to go and to deliver the Israelites from bondage there in Egypt, right? Now, he brought, some, he brought his wrath down on those Egyptians because they were idol-worshiping people. They refused to recognize God as the one true God and refused to let his people go. And so he brought plagues after plague after plague upon them, ultimately culminating in that tenth plague of the death angel. Their cattle died and the Israelites' cattle didn't. 
He provided a way whereby they could simply slaughter a lamb, do all of the different, you know, eat it the way he said he did, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and the death angel would pass over. He protected them in the midst of the expelling of his wrath upon the Egyptian people. So I think it's reasonable to say that it could be either one of these. So the key thing here for us to understand is that in the midst of this great tribulation that's coming, God has promised that he will protect believers during that time. Whether he removes us by a rapture of the church before the time of tribulation or whether he miraculously somehow protects us through that time of tribulation, we will not suffer his wrath for we are no longer children of wrath. That does not necessarily mean we will not experience, be present during that time of tribulation. So those are the two sides of it. You can decide for yourself which one you want to adhere to. So, he will protect them because of their faithfulness, because they have not denied his name. Because they have not denied his word. They have endured so far. And then when Christ opens or shuts a door, nobody else can close or open it. <clears throat> you see, our eternal, as a follower of Christ, as a believer, our eternal destination is secure. That open door Nobody can close it. If you're truly, uh, truly saved, you'll walk through that door one day. Either when you pass from death, you know, pass uh, you know, from physical life, physical death, or if Jesus comes back before that happens. No one is going to stop his mission that his name be glorified among the nations either. You and I may walk in a disobedience. God has chosen to use you and me. But we're not going to stop his mission. We can't, we will not stop that open door. He will accomplish his purposes sovereignly, providentially, with or without us be so much better if we just joined him in what he's doing so first of all we need to understand and remember the god that we serve the holy and true god who has all authority recognize that god is going to open door of opportunity for us he's opened the door to heaven that we might enter in and he's opened a door of ministry and opportunity that many others might enter in. And then thirdly, we see obstacles and opposition always accompany opportunity. Man, wouldn't it be nice if it was just easy? But there's a battle taking place, folks. There's a spiritual battle that's taking place every day. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Satan is like a roaring lion roaming to and fro, seeking whom he might devour. There's a spiritual battle taking place. The church will be opposed. Bullet number one, the church will be opposed by those who follow a false faith. 
Yes, they're going to call us haters. They're going to call us intolerant. They're going to stand against us. It's coming. But what we need to understand is that our enemy is not flesh and blood. You see, there's a, there's a, our enemy is not flesh and blood. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those that follow religion of Islam are not our enemies. The guys that set off the bombs and fly the airplanes, they're not our enemies. Satan is our enemy. He's seeking to lead as many people as he can in rebellion against God. The gay rights activists are not our enemies. You see, but Satan wants to distract us in such a way that we're going to relate to them in a, in a way that is ungodly. Certainly, we have to take a stand. We're going to define marriage from God's Word. We're going to define all of our standards for moral living from the Word of God. But the guy that follows the religion of Islam, that Muslim... He needs Jesus. The Hindu needs Jesus. The gay rights activist needs Jesus. The atheist needs Jesus. Are we going to relate to them in such a way that we actually have an opportunity to share the gospel? Are we going to relate in such a way that they never want to be like us? So we've got a challenge before us. More and more, we're going to have ungodly, unbiblical worldview stuff crammed down our throats. And in the midst of all of that, we still got to say, how in the world do we love these folks in such a way that we can love them to Jesus? Opposition and obstacles always accompany opportunity. We need to be ready for it. But in that, we see that Christ promises to bring these who were opposing the folks there at Philadelphia to their knees. He says in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. You see... We don't have to fight the battle. We simply need to surrender to the Lordship of Christ on a daily basis because He's already fought the battle. He's already won. He proclaims. I'm sure that, that He had to be thinking in, at, at this time and what Paul saw in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and those of heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't matter what you and I do. 
Christ has already won the battle. He has proclaimed that every knee will bow, every tongue confess. We simply need to walk in obedience. Recognizing that the opposition that comes against us, they're not our enemies. Satan is our enemy. It's not flesh and blood. And that Jesus Christ has already defeated Satan. When he hung there on that cross and he took your sin and my sin and he satisfied the wrath of God. He defeated Satan when he rose from the grave claiming victory over death. The battle's already won. So as we strive in this battle to remain faithful. Let's remember the God that we serve. Let's remember that God is going to open doors of opportunity for us. And that He will empower us to walk through those doors. And let's remember that that opposition and obstacles always accompany opportunity. But we will not be defeated by those because we serve a risen Savior. And then lastly, we need to remember that God will reward the faithful. Look at verses 11 and 12. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take away your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God. And on the name of, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That crown that is talking about endure in order that no one takes away that crown. That crown being representative of a reward for faithfulness. We're going to receive a reward for faithfulness. And then we see that we're going to have intimacy with God. I will make him a pillar in the temple. I will give him a new name. I will write on him the name of my God and, and, and the name of the new Jerusalem and even Christ's new name. It speaks of intimacy with God, permanence as a pillar in the temple. It speaks of citizenship, the presence of God among his people in a new age of righteousness, a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to live in such a beautiful, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ in a, in a place where there is no longer any sin, any evil, but a only pure righteousness. <coughs> I'm reminded of the story I heard about a, a lady that was making all of her funeral arrangements and preparations. And she went to her pastor and she's told her pastor, Once I'm placed in that coffin, I want someone to place a fork in my hand. And he said, well, that's a very strange request. What what, what do you mean by that? 
And she says, you know, when, when we have all these great family gets-togethers or a social here at church and we've had a, a, a great meal together and people are coming around and cleaning up things and if they tell you to keep your fork, you know the best is yet to come. Coconut pie. <laughs> Pecan pie. Or whatever your favorite is. You see, the best is yet to come. We're only passing through. This is not our home. We're going to receive eternal rewards for faithfulness in heaven. John MacArthur says it like this. Believers will enjoy an unshakable, eternal, secure place in the presence of God. In biblical times, one's name spoke of his character. Writing his name on us speaks of imprinting his character on us and identifying us as belonging to him. The New Jerusalem is the capital city of heaven, a place of perfect holiness. The overcomer will enjoy eternal citizenship at the moment we see Jesus Christ. Whatever we may have called him and understood by that name will pale in the reality of what we see. And he will give us a new eternal name by which we will know him. Hallelujah and amen. It's not going to be an easy journey. But as we seek to walk in obedience to Christ and as we seek to remain faithful and endure to the end, remember the God that we serve. He is the one true God, holy and righteous, perfect without any sin, who has all authority and who will empower us to walk through whatever life brings us. He will open great door of opportunity for us. He will open the door of heaven for us. He will open door of ministry for us. And He will empower us to walk through those doors. He will encourage and sustain us through the difficult times of life when the obstacles and persecution comes along with those opportunities. And ultimately, when we remain faithful, He's going to reward us. So let's commit today to endure to the end that we might taste the sweet fruit of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ.